Hello, and welcome to In Theory, the podcast where we talk about the theories that help us make sense of the world. I'm Maria Sachiko Sasiri. And I'm Naran Khan. Today, we're talking about the apocalypse. That's right, for horsemen, end of times, all that doomsday stuff. Uh, a 2012 Reuters poll showed that almost 15% of people around the world thought that they'd see the end of the world in their lifetimes. In America, it was 22%, between a fifth and a quarter of the population. By far, the most popular apocalyptic belief in America is evangelical Christian. What are the prophecies that so many people think are about to come true? How can we explain the widespread nature of these beliefs? And how do you make sense of this way of thinking if you don't share it? Today, we're excited to bring in a guest, the wonderful and brilliant Dr. Anra Khalidi of Wadham College at the University of Oxford. She's a scholar of theology and anthropology who works on apocalyptic and prophetic belief and also happens to be one of Maria's main lady friends uh, from her Oxford days. Yep. Maria sat down with Anbra to talk the end of times, and we're going to visit that conversation as we talk through some of this stuff ourselves. Okay, so Amber and I started our chat with a crash course in apocalyptic belief, and I'm going to just hand it right over to her. Should I introduce myself? Yeah, sure. So that's a good start. Okay, um, so I'm Amber Khalidi, and I'm research associate at Wadham College at the University of Oxford. And I specialize in apocalyptic theology, and um, I study mainly contemporary Christian evangelical apocalyptic belief and um, prophecy belief, which is sort of the art of predicting the end of the world. Mainly what I concentrate on is American manifestation of that. So um, you're studying us. I am. I'm watching you. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, I mean, it is a worldwide phenomenon. So uh, there are communities in Nigeria and Melanesia um, in Korea who also sort of partake in these belief systems. It's not just an American thing. Well, it's good to know. Yeah, you're not alone. <laughs> Never alone. So, okay, so what, what are the features of evangelical apocalypse? Well, I mean, an evangelical Christian apocalypse basically follows the pattern of the biblical apocalyptic literary tradition, which is more or less based on, if you're a literalist, which means that you believe that the word of the Bible is literally true, and then what you believe in, more or less, is the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the New Testament, um, which allegedly describes the vision of St. John and his revealed knowledge about the end of the world. Uh-huh. Revealed, hence Revelation. Exactly. So it's a series of symbolic omens and portents about plagues, judgments, and, I don't know, destruction, really, mm-hmm. that manifests itself in the the end of the earth and the establishment of Jesus. So the idea is that Jesus comes back to earth in the second coming and establishes a thousand year reign. So that's where you get the term millennial from. So if people talk about the millennial kingdom, that's because Jesus' reign is supposed to be a thousand years. But this is not like connected to the youth of today, not that kind of millennial. No. <laughs> what do you mean? I was like, <gasps> the millennial. <laughs> it's begun. <laughs> no, but if you hear anything about millennial movements or pre-millennialism, uh, um, that's what it's in relation to. Is this where like the four horsemen of the apocalypse Yeah, that's right. Yeah, stuff like that? exactly. Exactly. 
Okay. So the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse are supposed to be harbingers of the coming apocalypse. So they're one of the first signs of the end of the world. So how do people kind of like read this stuff today? Like how do they read the book of Revelation? Yeah, well, I guess like what are the kinds of things that we're supposed to be looking out for nowadays? Because I mean, like, I don't really... I feel it's it's difficult to convince people to look out for like the reign of frogs or whatever. I mean, it's not Maybe as difficult as you think. Genesis. <laughs> it's, I know where you're going with that. <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. Think about locusts. Yeah. Um, it's it's not as difficult as you think. I mean, in pop culture, you see you know, the references to sort of the horsemen of the apocalypse or the portents and signs, you know, locust, the moon, the sun being darkened, the wormwood, the asteroid that's supposed to, the comet's supposed to come to Earth and, you so know, wait, where do we see those things? Um, something like, I don't know if anyone watches Dexter, one of the series of Dexter, for example, was mm -hmm. based around this kind of sort of apocalyptic reading of the Book of Revelation, um, this sort of um, maniac essentially <laughs> decided to enact <laughs> the, these uh, portents of doom as laid out in the book of Revelation. Great. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the interesting thing about apocalyptic rhetoric is that you can kind of use it almost any way that you want to mean or say anything that you want to say. So if you go online and you just Google signs of the apocalypse, you're going to find hundreds and thousands of different indicators depending on who's doing the indicating and predicting. So there's, for example, there's a website called raptureready.com, which is basically an index of all of the different signs and portents that indicate that the rapture is approaching. So the rapture is the moment in which it's believed that Jesus comes back to earth and physically zaps up all his saved people and takes them up to heaven. Um, and then they're in heaven and they're safe um, from the unfolding apocalypse that happens on earth. So and they get to come back for the thousand-year reign? That's right, yeah, they get to come back. Mm -hmm. So Rapture Ready is basically an index of all of these signs. According to a very specific political worldview, so it might be, according to the author of this website, rise in um, rates of homosexuality, rise in abortion rates, so things that they suggest are indications that the moral and social conditions on Earth are worsening to the point at which Jesus was going to have to come back and save us all. This is like, like moral hypochondria to me. You know, yeah. it feels like there would just be like, you know, so many potential signs that it would be like you constantly are going to ask for the Jesus doctor to come and fix it. Yeah, I mean, if you want to look for signs, you're going to find signs. You can say this is the coldest weather. You know, we're in England right now. <laughs> this is the coldest <laughs> summer in the last 50 years. It's the coldest August uh -huh. on record, indicating that... Is it? You know, no, okay. no, it's definitely not. Okay, so that no, it's 20 degrees. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's 10 degrees Fahrenheit outside. Um, uh, this is the English language. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> well, that was pretty juicy, Maria. Um, and I definitely made my way to Rapture Ready News, uh, which she name-checked. Oh, man. Um, it's, uh, it's crazy stuff. So it looks like it's exactly what she said, an accounting um, of all of the different news items that could relate to to like being signs for the end of days. Mm -hmm. The website looks like it's from 1996 and they definitely take <laughs> donations. So so in case you're itching to, you know, support something um, ambitious. Uh, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Big picture. Yeah, most of the most of the headlines are kind of like paranoid uh, commentary on LGBTQI rights. Mm. Um, 
with, you know, like I saw, I saw this quote time and again, the rights of the majority are being trumped by a vocal minority. Um, what a travesty. Mm. Um, and then they talk a lot about geological stuff, eclipses, like tremors, and then lots of stuff on Judaism and Islam. So, uh, it's an interesting website. If, you, if you're if you into this sort of stuff, it, it will be your playground. Or even if you just want to learn about it. Um, I, I don't think I, I got into <laughs> it quite as deep as you did, but I, I gave it a quick look over. And I, one of the things I most appreciated was that it has timelines for different kinds of portents of the end um, and timelines <laughs> for different kinds of things. And one of those things was rock and roll. Oh, wow. I know. That's so interesting. I, I will say a lot of what – Amber said resonated with me as a Muslim because we have our own um, eschatology, you know, related to this stuff. Mm. Um, Muslims have a day of judgment. Um, we have kind of many signs, uh, some of which are quite similar to, you know, the Christian signs that she mentioned. Mm-hmm. A lot of them relate to moral decay um, or environmental things. With the coming of Jesus, Prophet Isa, we call him, and um, a figure known as the Mahdi who will be fighting this, like, really intense satanic beast Mm -hmm. um so there'll be this like big huge war so like a lot of the stuff is quite similar and it really resonates and and i think it does in some ways across cultures and even uh faiths or no faith yeah i mean i thought it was really interesting because i was raised catholic and um for me i i heard about a lot of these kinds of things often in a vague sense of wailing and gnashing of teeth way off in the distance um, and yeah. certainly there's the teachings of always being like living ready for the end. Um, but this right. kind of sense of everyday preparedness of it, like literally could be today, um, wasn't really part of the way I was brought up. Um, and so to re- read about that has been really interesting. Um, I'd say like we have to be prepared at all times. Like that was something that we were told all the time, but not like, f- not physically, like more emotionally and yeah. mentally. Yeah. Like, be prepared, be ready. Yeah. So this like really literal approach to it has been really interesting to learn about from Ambra. But, you know, yeah. like as you were saying, it's, it's also not only for religious people. Um, there's plenty of uh, different ways that people think, or th- there are plenty of other scenarios that um, even secular people put forward as bringing about the end of the world in this lifetime. Everything from disease um, to overpopulation, climate change, that kind of thing, um, are also concerns that people have about kind of Mm non-religious ends of the world that could come about. Yeah. So, I mean, we could just go kind of dive very deeply into all of this. I wonder if it's the same inclinations uh, on the religious and the secular side Hmm. that, like, lead to these reactions. I, I I sense that it might be the kind of need to prepare or the need to feel secure. I mean, we'll, we'll get into this in a little bit, but um, it's something to think about. Definitely. So just to wrap this part up, according to Christian evangelical apocalyptic belief, the end is super nigh. And there are tons of signs pointing to the truth of this, ranging from the rise of rock and roll to political alliances to gay rights. But there are plenty of other thought systems that claim the end of the world is at hand. Coming up, we'll talk about why so many people might think in this way. Let's 
let's jump back into Maria's conversation with Anbra on why apocalyptic belief makes sense to folks who adhere to it. So people are believing the stuff, but like, why are people so into it? I mean, it's a control thing, I think, partly. Hmm. Um, because I can understand the appeal of wanting to feel like you have knowledge and information um, that's perhaps um, elite, that perhaps is only accessible to people who have this revealed knowledge about prophecy, about the way that the world is unfolding, a way that human history is developing. Yeah. Um, so I can understand the appeal of wanting to search the world around you and read it essentially as a kind of text full of signifiers of the end and feel that, okay, I, I'm in control. I have information about mm. when the rapture is going to happen, when the apocalypse is coming. Yeah. Okay, so at least you feel like you're ready. You're ready, yeah, you're ready. And that, you, that you're, you're aware. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in the kind of strict sense of the word, you could say it's a sort of paranoid reading. Uh-huh. A paranoid reading in the sense that you are looking to find things that you already expect to find. Mm-hmm. I see. So you have a pre-existing framework of what you expect to see. Mm-hmm. So you're reading the world to find examples or evidence of things that you're already looking to find. Well, in that case, I guess it's reassuring. Yeah, it's absolutely reassuring um, because you feel that what it demonstrates is that basically God's hand, if you believe in God, God's hand is controlling history um, and that if God is really controlling human history and God is controlling the earth and the development of the earth, then he's also in control of its deterioration. Hmm. So in a way, the piling up of all these signs actually is an indication that God is in control. So even if it's a bunch of signs of things that you're not into, Mm -hmm. if, for example, you're not into... Mm-hmm. homosexuality, Absolutely. gay marriage, whatever it is, Absolutely. then instead of a sign that your way of thinking is just, mm-hmm. you know, obsolete. becoming obsolete, you know, the rest of the world is moving past you, instead it's, okay, now this is just one of the signs that the thing I always knew was true is going yeah, to exactly. come about. Exactly, and God's yeah. in control. You can definitely read it as a very reassuring framework, hmm. a reassuring mechanism. Um, I think also part of the appeal in believing that the apocalypse is coming or the rapture is coming or that um, you know the end of the world is approaching is this idea that you know if you are the generation that lives to see this the most momentous event in human history in a way you're the most special generation that's ever lived you're the most important <laughs> i don't want to be important <laughs> <laughs> not in that way not in the end times way what it does is highlight your significance yeah because you're living at that crux that, that pivot of history where things change fundamentally. Mm-hmm. Um, and another important aspect of this, I think, as well, is that if you do believe in the rapture, what the theological framework tells you is you're never going to die. So the rapture as a concept suggests that people who have been born again and prayed this prayer and become saved um, are physically taken up to heaven. Hmm. So it's like in Star Trek, they got like beamed I mean, up? Almost, yeah, almost, yeah. And so, um, you, I mean, you never die. And the, the, this theology suggests, this, this prof- some of this popular prophecy, suggests that it's a, that's imminently about to happen. It could happen any moment. It could mm-hmm. happen right now while we're talking. And we wouldn't know. <laughs> I, uh, I have... wouldn't know. <laughs> uh... <laughs> but... Everyone at home, it could happen right now while you're listening. <laughs> could, I guess. <laughs> and that 
in a way it's very appealing because it means that the, the you know the scariest thing that could happen to any of us is it's not necessarily you die but your loved ones die and what this theology guarantees is that you know that that's probably not going to happen to you if you're saved if you're saved right it's kind of like ironic right mm. that paradoxically the end of the world and the coming of the four horsemen of the apocalypse mm. and all of the most horrible stuff that could possibly happen means that you will never die and the ones that you love will never yeah, die. Yeah, if you have the revealed knowledge, right? If you're safe. And that's, that's, that's the, the thing, is that it, what it does is juxtapose these two communities against each other. The people, the elite who have the knowledge, the revealed knowledge, mm. and the people who don't. And that's, I think, where the tension is because what it's doing is encouraging those in to reach to those who are out right. and bring them inside. Conversion, mm. essentially. Yeah. And this is, I guess, why it's probably perennially so popular and why it's all over the internet. <laughs> yeah, I think that is why it's so popular. And I think, I don't know, my research is something that I find quite frustrating, actually, is that a lot of people seem to assume that apocalyptic belief is just for people who are marginalised or people who are maybe not very well informed or I don't know aren't very well educated or I mean and that's just not true it's not true at all and I think it's very unfair to suggest that because well, essentially when people make suggestions like that what you're doing is drawing power away from those who choose to believe those philosophies I think it's a very simple idea if you don't want your loved ones to go through the horror and judgment and plagues and pestilence and flesh-eating locusts and demons of the apocalypse you're going to try and talk to them about Jesus. Okay, you know, I understand that. I mean, I think most people can understand that where that drive comes from, mm -hmm. even if you don't share the same belief system. Yeah, and then it's nice because it, I guess, gives it a kind of hopeful reminder that if you find someone who's trying to talk to you about Jesus because of the end of the world, mm -hmm. maybe even if you don't agree, it's probably coming from a good place. I mean, I would say so, yeah, I'd say so. In my experience, anyway. I love this. Yeah, that conversation was really eye-opening for me, um, really helpful, because I personally don't believe um, in this form of the end of the world and actually have struggled a lot lately because I have um, some very close people in my life, um, and one particular who has been reaching out to me very insistently. Um, with the signs and portents of the end of the world um, in ways that I found, you know, kind of offensive and hurtful. Um, but talking to Amber has helped me maybe think about it as a sign of love, even if one that I can find really frustrating sometimes. Yeah. Uh, Fair. But, you know, but to, to kind of reframe that conversation. So that was like super helpful for me. I, th I, I mean, just she's very compassionate and generous in like putting you in other people's shoes. And I, I even felt the same way. I, I'm not necessarily confronted with that regularly, but it's just so useful to think broadly about where people are coming from and why they might feel so desperate and so urgent um, about conveying these sentiments. And it would certainly help me temper my reactions to a lot of stuff. Definitely. Hearing her talk kind of forced me to think about my own beliefs. And, you know, I'm I'm a practicing Muslim. And like I said, we have this, like, very robust kind of eschatology around this stuff. And I think I, you know, I think I believe in it. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't really have the same urgency. I, first of all, I think the signs, like, I'm pretty loosey-goosey about the signs. Like, I, I don't feel, like, nervous about the way our society is going in a lot of ways. That would make other people nervous. You don't think Obama's the Antichrist? 
No, definitely not. I have received many an email to that effect. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, poor guy. Yeah. So because of that and, and some other things, like I don't, you know, I also don't think that like other people are held to like whatever belief system I have, mm. no matter how strong I believe, like how strongly I believe in it. Um, and so like I don't really need, I don't find myself talking about this with other folks or like worried about other folks like that much. I guess that's not the way I manifest. But I think across religions, like I think this does happen. I don't think it's limited to Christianity. I think lots of people are worried about the souls of their loved ones and people they care greatly about. And that's just, that's not necessarily limited to one faith. So it's out there. It happens. And, you know, she's very deeply compassionate in expressing why that might be so. Yeah. And I think it's a great lesson, you know, even if you're totally secular, totally atheist, um, most atheists, I think, are extremely compassionate people who want to be, you know, in a world that's full of caring conversation. And framing it in this way, I think, helps me definitely to remember that people are often trying to convert you because they care about you. Yeah. Okay, so to wrap this up, if you think about it, believing that the end of the world is around the corner is pretty understandable. It gives people a sense of control and order in what can be a pretty confusing world with a bonus of making your generation the most important generation because it's the last. And it also holds out the possibility for that time-honored hope that we and our loved ones will never die. So if you're feeling frustrated with the people ringing your doorbell and trying to talk to you about religion – Just try to take a deep breath and remember that your visitors mean well. So I asked Amber for a good theoretical frame for people who want to understand how so many people can totally believe something that can sound so irrational in a society that puts emphasis on science and logic. She pointed to some pretty heavy lifting, uh, Michel Foucault's theory of discourses from his Archaeology of Knowledge. I'll let her explain it. I think one of the things that's really useful to bear in mind when you're looking at religious communities is that they are discourses. And, I mean, this is the In Theory podcast, so I hope you don't mind if I whip out a bit of Foucault. Do it! Um, Michel Foucault is this very famous, very influential theorist who wrote about many, many things, but um, in one of his more famous texts called The Archaeology of Knowledge, which was published in 1972, he sort of laid out his theory of discourses. And what he described is basically a discourse is kind of like a system of thought that basically constructs the reality for its participants. And I think that's actually a really useful framework when you're thinking about the way that religious systems work, because they are discourses. They aren't just organic things that just appear. So when you're thinking about who's making laws and what's clean and what's unclean and what's allowed and what's taboo, it's useful to keep in mind the fact that this is is a constructed system Mm. governed by power relationships. Who who are the people making these decisions? Mm -hmm. It's really important to bear those practical physical things in mind as well as just the spiritual nature of of uh, sort of religious communities mm-hmm. so could you maybe give an example of like how a religion is structured through discourse 
Okay, so for example, in the 70s, there was this very famous book in the States called Late Great Planet Earth, written by a man called Hal Lindsey. It's a popular prophecy book that's written from an evangelical framework. And it basically what it does is kind of explain the way that the end of the world is going to happen, according to Hal Lindsey's sort of theological background. So that had an immense effect on people's understanding about the rapture, about the role of Russia in the end times, about the role of Israel in the end times. And you wouldn't necessarily point at it and say, okay, that's a religious text. This is part of a structured religious process. But it was a cheap paperback that explained very complicated theology in a very kind of friendly, easy to read, digestible, sort of punny way. I mean, it's also a bit racist, to be honest with you, <laughs> and sexist. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not a very people-friendly so readable. Read. So readable. So readable. <laughs> In the 70s, maybe. Uh, um, and it's things like that, so physical material objects, something that is cheap, that's portable, that's, that you can hand to somebody in an airport and say, have you been saved? Read this book. It will mm. tell you. And it's little things like that that are materials, or they're, part, they're part of this discourse, right? They're material objects that help to perpetuate discourse. People who read a book like that are insidiously, without realising it, absorbing these theological ideas without realising that they come from this whole, there's this whole historical framework behind them. And then these ideas become legitimised, they become mainstream, they become absorbed, and then you get the raptures and appearing in The Simpsons. You know, I'm not saying that this is how Lindsay's fault. What I'm saying <laughs> is that these little things sort of leach into popular culture because they've been established as quote-unquote mainstream because of these little processes of discursive uh, patchworks. Wow. Um, actually, I do want to say this applies to like this scenario and everything else, like looking at how something is constructed and presented and the sources of power behind it will help you understand anything around you. So like, you know, like it's a it's a really useful touch point, actually, and certainly in this case. Totally. No, I completely yeah. agree. I mean, one of the big takeaways from Foucault's kind of theory of discourses um, is that Foucault wants us to think about history and not just in terms of like dates and names of kings and that kind of thing, but what he calls the archaeology or genealogy of knowledge production. So in other words, like where does knowledge come from? What are the structures of power that make something read as true for a population? So in what Amber is talking about, how does, you know, apocalyptic belief become mainstream enough to read as true for a certain community. Um, but like you're saying, I think that could work with all kinds of different scenarios where you start to see, you know, how knowledge and power are connected um, and how some discourses come across as producing truth while others get marginalized or shut down. Um, and, you know, in some cases you may find that other discourses may be useful for resisting and rethinking dominant structures. Oh, so good. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so good and so useful. And related to that, you know, coming from this perspective, thinking about how different discourses produce different ways of thinking about truth um, and also power, um, it was really important for Ambra that we remember to talk respectfully about apocalyptic belief. She brought this up a couple of times, so I just want to play a, a little bit um, of her talking about that now. Yeah. Yeah, great. I think that I would preach, to use a bad word, um, <laughs> generosity really when we're talking about structures of thought that encourage belief in the approaching end of the world. Because it's a, con it's a constant feature of my research that I'm asked, you know, why do you study people who believe in this kind of thing? 
they're lunatics, crazies. So. And I think that by calling somebody a lunatic, what you're doing is positioning yourself as being at the centre, saying, I'm normal. Mm. And I'm pointing out into the fringes or the margins of society where all the lunatics are and their crazy ideas. Um, and I think by, when you call somebody lunatic or you call their ideas a lunacy, all you're trying to do is serving to um, establish your own normality, your own centrality. And I don't actually think it serves any community-spirited dialogue, conversation, communication, anything like that. Um, I, I think certainly the use of language around it is problematic and the kind of power differential is problematic. But at the same time, I don't want someone to run the country who's like, we are about to be raptured tomorrow. <laughs> so we're going to make all decisions based on that. Oh, for sure. I think but there's a different language. That's what I think it is. I mm -hmm. think there's a language of um, disagreement. Uh, and then there's a language of madness. By calling somebody crazy or by calling their ideas crazy, um, you're not actually trying to communicate or establish a dialogue with them based on their own logic system or based on their own rhetoric. I, th I completely understand that frustration because mm -hmm. obviously I don't share any of these philosophical or theological ideas at all, mm -hmm. but that doesn't give me the right to say that they're crazy. Mm. I could say that I disagree with them, mm. um, but I think it's just a matter of vocabulary. I like so much else of what Amber was saying. This is like both very compassionate and very helpful. Mm -hmm. I think I often times dismiss things either out of just like I, w I wouldn't call it laziness but it's just so easy to call something crazy and not deal with it mm. and not deal with the realities of it um but I loved the distinction that she drew between language around disagreement versus madness mm -hmm. and you know in certain circumstances it really is important to, to really kind of dive more deeply into like why people think the way they do and look for the real reasons which are there it's not pure lunacy yeah, and I mean, one of the things that was interesting about her talking about this for me was reminding me that, you know, I do take issues sometimes with um, a co complete and utter reliance on scientific discourse when, you know, I believe in science totally. Sure. Um, but at the same time, I do think that in doing so, we can believe in science like a religion instead of thinking through things sure. carefully. And then it ends up, you know, being just as troubling. Sure. Um, and so, you know, it reminded me that we have to be careful to keep each other's perspectives in sight and be respectful of them instead of just closing our eyes to any other one and charging off in one direction. Doesn't sure. mean we have to live by the same beliefs as other people or not stand up for our own. But I do think that this kind of argument for compassion and the right kind of language is important. It might even help you have, like, a better conversation and better engagement, right? Like, um, it, it might afford you the opportunity to disagree better yeah. and more constructively. Um, I have to say, like, I'm really, like, pleased with how much I learned about this stuff. Like, I think my gut reaction would be this is going to be a conversation about crazy people, quite, quite honestly. And, I mean, that's, like, super disrespectful on many levels um, to say. But I think a lot of people start out thinking yeah. that as well, yeah. you know. Yeah, but – yeah, I did. but I think that the the part that really resonates is like looking at like why people might feel this way and the sense of control actually does make sense. Like there is so much disorder and chaos and injustice and, you know, a lot of folks turn to religion. I certainly do. But the next step over, like this furthering of the feeling of control really manifests here. Definitely. 
So whether we agree or disagree with people who believe that the end of the world is right around the corner, we should try to be respectful of other perspectives. People who expect the apocalypse are often worried about your soul in a well-meaning way. That doesn't mean you have to accept or overlook practices you find offensive or you just don't believe in, but we can all try to work towards a society of respectful disagreement and avoid taking part in a power dynamic that dismisses other people's belief as crazy. Indeed. Um, So stay tuned after the podcast for a bonus story of exorcism from Ambra's days of undercover apocalyptic field research. I swear (laughs) to God, Ambra has more extreme stories from her life than anybody I know. She is such a fun, interesting person. She actually wrote a really great piece on exorcism, male power, and the murder of Adina Hines for Jezebel, um, and that includes some more stories of her being exercised uh, over the course of her research. Um, We'll link to it on our website. Questions, comments, ideas, we'd love to hear from you at intheorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find past podcasts and more information about us at intheory.us or on our Facebook page. Please subscribe to In Theory on iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Shoot your friends an email and tell them to listen to us too. In Theory is produced with the support of Experimental Humanities and Human Rights Radio at Bard College. Music composition and art design by our pal and yours, Aaron Taylor-Waldman. Thanks for listening. Okay, so uh, I know that you went on uh, various research trips Mm -hmm. to do this research about apocalypse-ness. So I was wondering if you could share an interesting experience that happened to you while you were undercover as an evangelical, for example. I mean, I've, uh, I've definitely had some interesting experiences. I mean, obviously, as you know, I've been exercised. That was with an O. Not with an E. Just like to point that out for In the sense that someone took the demons away from you. Yes. Yes. The demons I am free that... of demons now. Did you think that you had demons at the time? No, I did not. <laughs> However, How did this transpire? My neighbours did not did not quite agree with <laughs> my interpretation of my demonic inhabitation. Okay. Um, however, I, you know, I still I chose to interpret their attempts as uh, a genuine, a genuine uh, concern for the fate of my my soul. That's very good of you. What did they do when they were exercising you? And did you vomit pea soup? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean that would have been maybe uh, that might have deterred future exorcisms. For sure. <laughs> uh, there are there are many many flavors of exorcism prayed over. Uh, ho- liberally doused in holy water, um, <laughs> including one occasion when I woke up in the middle of the night and my house was surrounded by neighbors in the darkness carrying candles, singing a song, carrying crosses. Okay. Casting the devil out from my house. You're a very <laughs> tolerant and, and accepting person. I would be like, what is happening? <laughs> <laughs>